0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're focusing on China's economy. There has been increasing reporting on the economic problems China face. In February, Russian troops invaded Ukraine, sending shockwaves throughout the global economy, impacting supply chains as well as China's trade with Russia. In April. Shanghai and its 26 million residents were placed under lockdown to slow the spread of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Economic forecasters now predict that China's economy is slowing under the weight of its zero-COVID policy. How should we understand the state of China's economy? What measures are the Chinese leadership taking to uphold growth and address concerns in the coming months, particularly in the lead-up to the 20th Party Congress? Joining me to discuss these questions is my colleague Scott Kennedy, Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics here at CSIS. Dr. Kennedy is a leading authority on Chinese economic policy and has been traveling to China for over 30 years. His specific areas of expertise include industrial policy, technology innovation, business lobbying, U.S.-China commercial relations, and global governance. His articles have appeared in a wide variety of policy, popular and academic venues, including New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy and China Quarterly. Scott, thank you for joining us today.
1: Happy to be here with you.
0: So the topic that we're discussing today is China's economy. We've been seeing a ton of news articles discussing how China is not doing so well economically. So we'd like to unpack that a little. But before we do that, I'd like to start by gaining a bit of background on China's economy. From your perspective, what have been some of the long-term drivers of China's economic growth?
1: Sure, Bonnie, I'm happy to talk about this topic and it's always potentially confusing, uh, even for those of us who watch it on a, a daily basis, because there is so much news pouring out of China and it's hard to get our arms around it. Long-term, going back 30, 40 years, you have to be super impressed by China's economic trajectory from uh, where it was in the late 70s, early 80s uh, to where it is is now. China's grown faster, longer than any other large economy in history and uh, that's extremely impressive and that's the product of continual gradual improvements in human capital in investment in infrastructure and health care and many other elements of 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 the economy of reasonably stable governance. We don't want to praise Chinese governance uh, for all the things that it does uh, for human rights abuses and other things. But political stability does have its advantages, sometimes with regard to the economy. And of course, even uh, elements of Chinese industrial policy have also translated into China moving up value-added chains, not just central government policies, but what, what lots of local governments in China have done. Of course, all of that has come along with corruption Uh, environmental degradation, growing gaps between rich and poor. But broadly speaking, China is at a much better place uh, four decades later after it started reform. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, there are still some huge monster economic problems, some structural uh, and a lot cyclical. Uh, Some things that look particularly horrible now that may not look horrible or as horrible in a few months. And I'm happy to try and delineate between the structural and the cyclical to figure out, you know, where things are going short term as well as, you know, what we should expect, you know, in the next few years.
0: That's a great segue to giving a little bit more background before we go into the contemporary issues. But as you look back, whether it's, you know, five years, 10 years or 40 years as you did, are there major structural cyclical factors that you would point to that the Chinese government has been struggling to deal with over these years? And are some of these factors still relatively pronounced now?
1: Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And there are still giant challenges. And I'll just mention a, a few of these that uh, they've, they've not been able to adequately deal with. First is demographics. China's population has been graying, partly as a result of the one-child policy and even though they've abandoned that policy, they've not been able to spur growth in the population. And that's just what happens everywhere as you become more urbanized, as as women become more educated, enter the workforce, it's very difficult to re-ramp up population growth. And the cost of living in China is extremely high. And so they've had a difficult time with this with the domestic population. And China doesn't really allow inward immigration. They have foreign workers in some places, but for the most part, it's extremely difficult to live in China long term and feel comfortable there. And in the last few years, it's been absolutely impossible. So demographics is a big challenge. Uh, A part of that demographic challenge is also the Hukou system, the household registration system that uh, divides the population between urban and rural. And the difficulties of of folks from rural China being able to move and obtain the services of urbanites is still quite difficult. And that has made the demographic problem even more pronounced and, and made it more difficult for people to get higher quality educations, and and be appropriately trained for 21st century economies, advanced manufacturing, IT, you name it. China has a lot of folks in cities who are very bright and smart, but it also has a humongous rural population still. And, you know, two thirds of Chinese still today don't finish high school. And so that demographic problem is, is quite pronounced. Also, over the last decade, as Xi Jinping has asserted his control over the economy, we have seen a step backwards in how private companies have been treated and you know this there's that phrase Kuo jin the advance of the state the retreat of the private sector it's not quite exactly like that uh, as andrew batson and others have shown you know state owned enterprises still account for somewhere around a quarter of gdp that number has held relatively steady over the past two plus decades but in terms of the trajectory of where china had been going and the ability of private companies to uh, invest in certain kinds of industries. W- you've definitely seen the state strike back, and uh, as you've seen, you know how Alibaba was treated and how other private companies in high tech, in the internet services, have been treated. That's been a, a humongous challenge as well. Uh, China's financial system is still highly inefficient. It still directs most capital to state-owned enterprises that don't deserve it. Even though you would say perhaps pri- state-owned companies are more likely to pay off their loans. They don't use those loans anywhere nearly as well as private companies who have you know, productivity much, much higher than state-owned companies. So these are a, a, a few of the problems that uh, continue to bedevil China's economy and Chinese policymakers. And because China's economy is so much a, an increasing size of the global economy, and we are still all highly interconnected, regardless of what folks think we ought to be. It's affecting everyone on the planet.
0: As you look now at the challenges that China faces and you look a little bit forward, it seems a lot of the discussion is focused on the impact of Russia's invasion on U- of Ukraine on global supply chains and what that means for China, as well as a lot of recent discussion about COVID. I'd like to unpack uh, these two factors in a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you, are there any other major factors that we should be looking at? There's also been discussion about real estate, but are there recent issues that have really made China's economic woes more pronounced in the past year or past couple of months that we haven't necessarily mentioned yet?
1: Well, in addition to diplomacy and the challenges uh, that has brought uh, growing frictions between China and the rest of the world and COVID, the leftward lurch, of China under Xi Jinping, to promote what he calls common prosperity, which uh, an initiative that began before the pandemic, I think has had a huge effect on, on China's economy. And the sense that, you know, this i this concept, you know, the goal of trying to make it so that there's less inequality, that you address some of the monopoly monopoly practices of certain kinds of companies, that you try and make it so that kids don't play video games all night and day, that families don't spend all of their savings on uh, cram schools for their kids. Those things make sense. But the way in which they've pursued, quote unquote, common prosperity really has put a pall over uh, much of the industry of high tech and private companies. And I think reduced people's sense of trust that they could invest in these industries, which were the fastest growing parts of the Chinese economy, the largest job makers. And that is really an own goal that Xi Jinping has has kicked into the, the net, having nothing to do with the pandemic or with how China's relationship with the rest of its neighbors were going. Even without the pandemic and growing tensions with the rest of the world, China's economy was still facing headwinds that they had brought on themselves.
0: So maybe let's talk a little bit more about common prosperity And how the leftward lurch has affected China's economy. So you mentioned that folks are, there's less trust in China's high-tech industries. Is that both in terms of foreign investors, but also domestic investors? Could, Could you just elaborate a little bit more on that?
1: it's it's both it's it's both domestic and foreign if you look at the amount of investment that private companies are are making they have slowed down dramatically their investment in in the in the creation of new companies of ipos in china of new products and services and because they're not sure whether these are safe spaces and that has been reinforced by events of the last few years of the pandemic and diplomatic challenges. But generally, the government has has created a lot of, they've put out a lot of credit and said, if you want loans, here they are. And folks aren't showing up at the window to get them because they're extremely nervous about this. And you hear lots of conversations about perhaps the need to move from China. And if you're an immigration lawyer in China, you've been receiving a lot more phone calls in the past than you ever did before. Because of this sense amongst China's private sector that it's not as as safe as it used to be. I also think that is, you know, unemployment by young people in China has been going up the last few years, uh, certainly exacerbated by the pandemic, but also by this broader leftward lurch. And, you know, the, the government has recognized quite belatedly mistakes that they have made and have come out with a whole variety of stimulus measures and, and words of reassurance to the private sector. I just don't think that they are widely believed uh, because we're not seeing a rush back and progress as a result of, of these words of reassurance.
0: It seems like, as you're saying, that this could have at least near term, if not medium term, impact on China's innovation capabilities as well as its ability to cultivate talent, particularly in the high tech sector.
1: That's absolutely right. You know, let, let, let's put it this way if, if we were sitting in 2015, right? Pre-Trump, pre-thinking Xi Jinping is the next Mao and, and totally different and, and everything. If we were sitting in 2015, and you're thinking, you know, where's where China going to be in a decade, right? They just come out with Made in China 2025. You would think, wow, they are destined for becoming number one. All they have to do is nothing. They just have to ride this wave and they will continue to grow at a pretty good clip. The U.S. comes along with uh, Trump administration, uh, not trying to be partisan here, but certainly threw a monkey wrench into America's economic growth and domestic governance and, you know, sowed uh, divisions within our society. And, you know, if you were looking at that, you would think, "Ooh, all China has to do is is not make any big, giant mistakes. And what did they do? Make big, giant mistakes. Mistake after mistake after mistake. And so now, this convers the conversation that we were having about the east rising and the west falling and china's inevitable dominance we're not having that conversation anymore not because the u.s is like done such a great job and fixed everything but because china has made so many monster mistakes and these are are really significant the chances now of china catching up with the u.s in terms of total gdp on a purchasing power parity framework that's pushed well into the future we're concerned, will China even have sustainable, significant growth over the next decade? And that, tran- that also then reflects itself in, in their desires to advance in a variety of different uh, technologies. You can't have two things in your mind exist at the same time that China's growth slows down dramatically and they become a high-tech power. Those two things can't coexist with each other.
0: Let me just follow up really quickly. You mentioned that projections of when China might catch up to the United States, has been pushed out uh, significantly in, in, into the future. Are there new dates by which uh, China might catch up now?
1: Yeah, I mean, this this is a game, and I don't know if we should overstate the importance of this because per capita income and productivity, uh, things which aren't measured at a gross level, are as, as important as overall size. But, you know, folks, we're looking at sometime between 2025 and 2030, of China surpassing the U.S. In, in, in total size, I think now we're looking at 2035, and depending on where you think Chinese population growth goes and productivity, perhaps actually never, never actually fully catching up, because at some point China's economy is definitely going to slow down. The question is, what will the peak be before they slow down, and where? And where is the U.S. going? So uh, I think now it's uh, been at least pushed back several years, and there's a possibility that if China doesn't right the ship, that they will never have got to that high water mark.
0: So going back to, uh, I guess, mistakes or errors that China has done uh, domestically uh, with respect to its economy, there's been quite a bit of discussion on whether it's zero, zero COVID policy and how strict China has been, has had a not only... Near-term effect, but potentially longer-term impact on China's economy. So, could you unpack that a little bit? How how do you view China's current zero COVID policy, and how do you view its effects so far? And do you see that changing anytime in the near future?
1: I think to talk about this, it, it, it'll help to bring in a little bit of a comparative perspective, Bonnie. And I just spent five weeks traveling in East Asia was trying to go to China, but because of the lockdown in Shanghai, the chaos in Beijing, the unpredictability of everything, I've postponed my trip, try and go again later this summer. But instead, so I went to Taiwan, South Korea and Japan. Not easy places to travel either because of visa requirements, testing, uh, quarantining, still significant challenges, but nevertheless, relatively predictable processes. And the differences between how those three societies have been managing COVID and, and China is quite telling. You know, it, China's not the only place that has tried zero COVID. Lots of, lots of places, including uh, its neighbors, uh, through 2021, basically also were trying to, through testing and isolation, quarantining, variety of limits on international travel, also trying to practice what we now call zero COVID. And, uh, but they realized with, with Omicron that that was a lost cause that it was too uh, infectious and they would be unable to stop it. And they had achieved a high enough level of, of vaccination that they could figure out how to basically deal with a very large wave and limit the number of people who became seriously ill and then either because of vaccination or having gotten COVID, they'd be relatively well protected, not perfectly because COVID keeps changing its stripes. And even if you've gotten COVID once, you can get it again or a second, third time. Uh, But if you've been vaccinated, et cetera, you're in a better position. So uh, Japan and South Korea went through that first in January and February, early March, Uh, And then Taiwan from from March, April and May. uh, Right now, the curve is starting to head down in in Taiwan as well. It's not that they want everyone to get COVID, but they know that they have to deal with this at some point. And so they change direction pretty dramatically. China is about six to eight months behind them. China still has, uh, despite Omicron, still hasn't decided to adjust policies in a direction in in which they will try and figure out how to go through this wave and come out on the other side better protected. And it is a genuine mystery to me why the Chinese have not really tried to more fully vaccinate their population, not just with domestic vaccines, but with international vaccines, how they have not tried to get better prepared for dealing with this. It may be the fact that they were very successful the first two and a half years of the pandemic with this strategy and just think they walk on water and can do things that no one else can. It may be that they can't persuade people to get vaccinated because people enjoyed living without a lot of cases or they don't trust the Chinese vaccines. Or it could be that Xi Jinping just likes control and more control, the better. And Ahead of the 20th Party Congress. He wants to just keep it that way. And this is a good excuse. None of that still makes really all good sense to me. But whatever it is, China is doing things very differently than its neighbors and the rest of the world. And as a consequence, uh, they have had to use extremely harsh measures to try and control and contain the virus. And You know, according to official data, it looks like they have relatively succeeded, but it's hard to know whether that data is believable or not. Certainly, the numbers on mortality don't seem realistic at all, and they are not to the other side. So they are facing the possibility of repeated lockdowns going forward until they decide to uh, change uh, their strategy. And so that's going to be a drag on their economy for a significant period of time and on people's perceptions both domestically as well as foreign companies. And many foreign companies have really, which have put up with a lot over the years, are now really wondering, is China a place that you can do business? And so we're seeing a lot more consideration of potentially moving investment, even though China is such a large market.
0: In terms of the the last point you made of foreign companies considering moving out of China, I, I noted that you used the term consider. You didn't say that you saw yet a significant uh, departure of an number of foreign companies. Is that a correct interpretation of what you said?
1: Yes, it's still, uh, for the most part, companies have not just gotten up and and moved. Let's put it this way. Uh, As a result of the trade war and tariffs, there was some adjustment, right? Uh, Companies wanted to get out of the way of the tariffs in, in either direction that the U.S. placed on China or China on the U.S. And for those companies, mostly who were producing for global supply chains, those adjustments were made in 2018 and 19. It has a relatively small percentage of, of American investment in, in China and foreign investment. More recently, and so most of the companies that are in China, manufacturing in China, are manufacturing for the China market. And it's much harder for them to consider moving. You've seen some adjustments, uh, some to Southeast Asia, to India, some reshoring to the United States, an overall diversification strategy as a result of, of diplomatic tensions, as a result of the pandemic as a result of climate change and growing costs for transportation and the like. But you've not seen an exodus any, or anything like an exodus. Uh, the most recent survey numbers show, though, an increased consideration. Uh, the European Chamber of Commerce in China's most recent survey showed that the percentage of respondents considering moving has gone from about 9% of those they polled last year to 23% or so this year, just uh, a few weeks ago. That's a giant jump uh, and may understate the anxieties about being in China and potential plans. And they're asking the folks on the ground in China those survey questions. If they ask HQ those questions, I think probably the numbers would be even higher. But yet there's still not an exodus. There's the the numbers, uh, the data on direct investment in China is held relatively steady. But I think those are very shaky numbers. And, you know, the the difficulty of just living in china let alone running an effective multinational enterprise in china has increased dramatically in the last few months
0: great so i want to touch on the third factor that we mentioned which are these international challenges and particularly the challenge brought about by uh, russia's invasion of ukraine disruption of global supply chains disruption of china's or not, i wouldn't say disruption but the impact that it has had on some of china's economic relationship with russia So could you unpack this a little bit? How much of this is driving the current discussion of China's economic issues? Is there a way to quantify the actual impact of the invasion on China economically?
1: Sure. You know, I I still think the effect of the invasion of Russia's invasion into Ukraine and China's support for Russia's position it's hard to see overall effect that's having on China's economic relationship with the rest of the world. Uh, certainly, still, the larger effect has been the trade war between the U.S. and China, the imposition of of tariffs in both directions, and just growing anxiety uh, in the U.S. and the West about China's trajectory, China's own reticence about the West and their feelings of being... Uh, ganged up against and that the U.S is trying to contain China. China's, and as a result, China's moved towards a more a, st- a strategy of self-reliance and you know pushing alternative norms. That has had a, a overall relatively large effect and, and is pushing a, a policymakers in the. US, uh, its allies and friends in Asia and in, in Europe, to take very significant steps to increase their defenses. To modify supply chains, uh, to lower dependence on China, diversify. Those are changes that are in the works, and we are going to see those carried out over the next few years. In terms of Russia, Ukraine specifically, I think that has yet to have a dramatic effect on companies' business dealings with China, in part because China has, as far as we can tell, adhered to Western sanctions on Russia. Chinese uh, Business in certain areas with China in ICT has dropped significantly, not just in those exact, very precise areas where there are sanctions, but even more broadly, even in selling handsets to China, those numbers have dropped uh, to Russia. And so I think as long as China abides by the sanctions, the consequences for it and foreign business doing, uh, interacting with China will be relatively muted. But if China steps over that line and faces secondary sanctions in any significant way, that would have a dramatic effect on China's relationship with the rest of the world because it would, uh, the hammer would come down very hard on China's financial sector and on a whole raft of industries that would take everyone from being in a safe space to an unsafe space in the blink of an eye. Uh, that, would be, that would be dramatic. So for the moment, that is just a cloud hanging over. China's relationship with the rest of the world. It could become a hurricane if China's behavior changes, in which case we would be going from a conversation about sort of gradual, partial decoupling, diversification to an isolation strategy. We're not there yet. I don't know if we will, but it's something that I bet you most C-suites are worrying about. On
0: that note, in case we do face that hurricane, do you think most U.S. companies are prepared. You said that most C-suite executives are worried about this, but do you think most are ready to take action or, I guess, cut their losses?
1: Absolutely not. Mike Green, our colleague here at CSIS for, for many years, who's uh, in the process of moving to work at the University of Sydney and, and good for them and, and, and sad for us, we uh, did some crisis simulations with... Uh, businesses over the last several months uh, and, and interviewed companies outside of that process. And for the most part, we found that companies are ready for day one of a crisis. Are my workers safe? Are my assets safe? They are not ready for day two and onward. They are not ready to fully revise their strategies and, and fundamentally take China out of the equation, either as a place for manufacturing or as a large market, or as a place for R&D, all of which are important to them now. You see modest steps in those directions, but they're not. And one can understand that. I mean, these companies grew up over the last few decades in an environment in which they thought China was gonna be part of a global interdependent economy for a very long time. And in the last three years, things have changed Extremely quickly. For the most part, what they've tried to do is keep their heads low, stay under the table, turn sideways to avoid fire from both Beijing and Washington, but keep going and and hope that, uh, against hope, that uh, things don't totally fall apart. So they're not ready uh, for, in addition to not being ready to make these monster adjustments, they aren't doing a lot to stop this tidal wave. You know, businesses used to be major voices in the policy conversation in Washington and other capitals about the relationship and where it should go. And they have been extremely quiet, very little to say about these very thorny issues. For the most part, you know, they kind of lick their finger, stick their finger up in the air, look for where the winds are going and think, okay, we need to be very, very careful rather than providing leadership because leadership is risky. So if companies want to reduce the likelihood that this hurricane comes about, then they're also going to need to step up and be much more vocal participants in our policy conversation. But then they also need to pay much more attention to the possibility of a hurricane occurring that's very long term and making adjustments for which they are not prepared yet.
0: So I'd like to start wrapping this up by f- uh, focusing more on so what are the implications of all that we've discussed. Right? Uh, Scott, you've mentioned a number of internal problems that China faces domestically with respect to its economy. You've mentioned also the international pressures or drivers of that are further contributing to, right now at least, just a cloud hanging over China. But who knows if that, at some point this cloud might bring a storm or a hurricane. right? So as we look at all of this, it seems to me that, you know, China's growth isn't that great moving forward. And it seems to me maybe some of the threat perception in D.C., the threat perception and views of China may be a little bit mismatched given where its current economic trajectory is. I just want you to weigh in on this on how does this discussion and this understanding of China's economic trajectory mean for how we should think about China's overall uh, power, as well as how you, we should think about U.S. policy with respect to China?
1: Just to cut to the chase and then explain my final point on this is there's no great outcome here. We've got dangers lurking regardless of China's overall trajectory, whether it becomes a monster superpower, the trajectory that it previously appeared to be on, or if its economy really devolves and there are monster problems and it doesn't catch up. Either, either one uh, creates uh, issues for us. I think, first of all, we can say the level of unpredictability about where China is going economically is, is higher than ever. Not just just you know how much they're going to invest and spend and infrastructure, but the predictability of the policy environment, the political environment as uh, nurturing for business, domestic, international, for developing talent and education and everything. That's a giant question mark that they've brought on themselves. And that unpredictability will make it difficult. Uh, Predictability is like a credit rating, right? It's part of a credit rating. And not just for companies, but for for countries, sovereign ratings. And China's sovereign rating in the eyes of the private sector informally has dropped. And it's very, very difficult to rebuild that credibility back up. And so they're going to have to work on on that. But for the moment, they don't have a lot of credibility. And so that means we're going to see slower investment, more government intervention, uh, more challenges in this economy. Uh, I think what that also means for the rest of the world, at an economic level, is more global volatility. Global volatility is a result of not knowing where China is going, China in the short term potentially having new occasional lockdowns that have effects on demand in China, have effects on China's participation in supply chains globally. And, and so th- that will affect both the product markets from raw materials to end goods, as well as for investors, direct investment, as well as for securities markets in lots of places. And so what looks like you know shortages now could look like massive oversupply in a few months, and we, it could go back and forth. That also means then at the same time as, as those problems occur – China's political leaders are still going to be trying to do everything they can from their perspective, uh, protect China's national interests, improve its military and defense and high-tech capabilities. And as a result, we could end up with not just e- an either-or scenario of, of a massively powerful China throwing its weight around, trying to create the world in an image safe for itself, or a very weak, meek China trying to just sort of get along uh, and, and readapt and integrate. In fact, what we could see is in some ways the worst of both worlds. We could see a China that is beset by domestic problems uh, with slower growth, unpredictability, internal dissension amongst elites, etc., cetera, and a more assertive foreign policy in some areas, whether that's with regard to Taiwan or the south china sea or at the un or supporting russia or, or others you know is still even you know at an absolute level uh still quite powerful in many areas and able to throw its weight around and so we could to me that's the the worry that we will see a a, a china that is not achieving what it could economically but also lurching in a foreign policy way that is that is still Quite dangerous, And, you know, if you're not doing well at home, your foreign policy is likely going to reflect some of that pessimism and uh, accusing the West and others of causing those domestic problems. So I, that could lead to even more tensions than any of the other scenarios. So to me, I, I, I'm worried that we may be getting the worst of, of both uh, a powerful and a weak China at the same time. And we've, we've got to be prepared for what that will mean for us.
0: Well, thank you, Scott. That's a very uh, stark note to end on, but perhaps one in which our listeners should be more aware of, as Scott mentioned. Thank you very much, Scott, for joining us for this very in-depth and comprehensive discussion on China's economic problems trajectory, but also the larger implications for China.
1: Happy to talk to you today, Bonnie.